not only were these poems a way for me to talk to her and, you know, go through this kind of healing process with her, but it was also a way to be able to highlight her voice and get her published and to remember her, you know, not only for myself, but for her loved ones and even for people who didn't know her. Hello there, and welcome to This Is My Family, a podcast about building a life with the people you love. I'm your host, Tyler Green, and I am so glad that you're here. In our first season, we talked to people with families of all shapes and sizes. Now, we're back for a second season with lots more stories to share about how we make our families and how those families make us. A little about me, if you're new to the show. I am raising a baby with my husband in California. Who is that? Papa. And who is this? Dada. I'm Dada, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy. You're the best. I started this show to talk to people who can inspire us to think about family in new, bigger, more inclusive ways. Some are people I've known for years. Others are creators whose work is important to me. We're kicking this season off with three conversations in the next three weeks featuring people who I consider heart friends. These are people who have really changed the way that I think about friendship and, quite frankly, how I show up in the world. This week, it's poet Danielle Badra, who has had a sort of unconventional family, but one that is full of love. Her family's story includes tales of leaving the clergy, of coming out of the closet, of losing multiple loved ones. We talk about how she uses her writing to connect with family members she's lost, including a sister who died almost a decade ago. I've known Danielle since college, Kalamazoo College, sometimes affectionately referred to by those of us who were queer students there as Gay K. We were classmates, friends, roommates eventually, and we could spend an entire episode talking about our history and all the fun things we did. Danny B, as I affectionately call her, is deep but approachable kind but firm, and honestly, one of the most amazing writers I've ever met. I started our chat by asking her about her family of origin, specifically her mom and dad's unlikely partnership. He was 53 or 52 and a half when he had me. He was 24 years older than my mom. From what he told me actually later in life, he had never actually planned on having children. But I guess when he met my mom and things changed for him, he ended up having a family. And he went from being Father Badra in the priestly sense to being Father Badra in the family sense. And he was a darn good dad. Weird, said weird stuff. You know, he was older. So I feel like I had some phrases that a lot of kids my age were just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Um, G. Willikers, you know. Yes. <laughs> For example. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. He was a good father, so. Yeah. Just didn't play ball with us and stuff like that. My mom took on those roles because, well, my dad couldn't catch anyways, really. I mean, he wasn't super sporty to begin with, but <laughs> also I think just being older, you know. He was the relaxed parent, let's say that. So then... In eighth grade, your mom came out 
as a lesbian, yes? So she did not come out uh-huh. as a lesbian in eighth grade. They got divorced when I was in eighth grade, but she did not come mm-hmm. out as a lesbian until I was a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. That memory will never leave my mind because she called me and my sister into the living room and she sat us down and she was like, girls, I have something I need to tell you. And Rachel and I were both like panicked. We thought she was going to tell us that she was dying or, you know, was marrying some other person or was pregnant again or, you know, who knows. And then she said, well, I'm dating a woman. And we just looked at each other, Rachel and I, and we were just kind of like, so, (laughs) okay, what's the big news? Like, (laughs) but I mean, we congratulated her, obviously. And we're like, oh, we support you no matter what. But we didn't see it as this like terrible thing that she thought we were going to see it as because I think, you know, we're a different generation than the one that she grew up in. Okay, so your mom came out to you when you were a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. You were not out yet? Correct. I definitely, <laughs> I you know, I knew something was in there. I knew there was a little mm. queer baby in there somewhere, but I just hadn't found her mm. yet. So I think actually, I at first I was kind of maybe intimidated by the idea of my own queerness. I don't know if that makes any sense, but like because my mom mm-hmm. was queer, I was kind of like, oh no, this must mean that I am too. Like this feeling that I've been having, mm. oh no, does that confirm that? You know, I think I ran away from it for a little bit because of that. That's so interesting. I, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know when you came out. Was it around this time? So I ended up coming out my freshman year of college at Kalamazoo College. <laughs> Natch. Yeah. Gay K. So. Gay K they call it. Yeah. Our alma mater. Mm-hmm. And how did your mom respond? Oh, I think she, I mean, I know she was happy. (laughs) (laughs) We can go to the bar together. Yeah, and I think at that point, we kind of all just turned to Rachel and we're like, well, (laughs) when are you coming out, Rachel? (laughs) And she kind of hated that because she was pretty straight. I mean, she definitely fell on the spectrum, but... uh, It's all a spectrum. Yeah, it's all a spectrum. Sometime soon after college, Danielle and her sister Rachel ended up living near each other in Washington, D.C., That's when her sister died. Since Rachel was in high school, there had been some warning signs. She would occasionally faint. Her heart stopped while she was sleeping. She was living with her boyfriend at the time, just down the street from me in Washington, D.C. And I got the call around 6 a.m. that she had been having seizures in her sleep from her boyfriend. He called me and I said, well, call 911. (laughs) Why are you talking to me? Call 911. Yeah. So he called 911. Yeah. The EMTs came out. They managed to stabilize her enough to transport her to the hospital. But her heart just kept failing. It just kept stopping. Basically, we ended up waiting two or three days in the hospital to see whether or not she still had any brain activity. And mm-hmm. that's when you know we found out that her brain did not have any any activity. Her brain had died. She signed up to donate life. And so at that point, it was a matter of trying to retrieve any sort of life-saving organs that could be donated. And she did, she was able to donate two kidneys, which I'm still very happy um, about to know that her kidneys mm. are living on somewhere. <laughs> mm. But yeah, then, then she died. And do you know what the 
cause was? Yeah. So we didn't find out the official cause until after the autopsy and everything was done, but it is arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia, also known as ARVD. She fainted while she was singing in a Christmas Eve mass at our church. And she fainted several times after that. And none of us knew at the time that that was actually her heart stopping. Everybody should know this. If somebody faints for more than one minute, you should probably call 911 because the chances are that their heart may have stopped. I did not know that, obviously, at the time, nor did anybody you know, else who was around. I still don't quite understand it, but I essentially, from what I understand, is there's like fat cells that form along the wall of the heart and that sporadically start and stop the heart. And one of the first symptoms can be sudden death. And I was actually told by her cardiologist while I was still in the hospital before they had officially taken her off of all the machines that I had a 50% chance of at some point in my life developing the same condition because of gen- genetic condition. But I thankfully, because we know of that possibility, I am able to get testing every year. So that week, did your parents come to DC or? I called everybody I could think of that would need to know. And within hours, I mean, we had like 20 people coming to DC immediately. My mom and dad and my mom's partner at the time, Mary, dropped everything that they were doing and raced out and made it within a few hours. And so did almost all of her best friends. It was incredible, (laughs) actually, the people that showed up. Was everyone able to gather and say some sort of goodbye in that moment or? Yeah. Well, of course, at that point, we still didn't know that her brain was dead. And so the 20 or so of us basically just gathered at her hospital bed every single day and spent hours upon hours beside her, singing to her, playing music for her, reading poems to her, holding her hand, telling her stories of her life, just doing anything to try to mentally stimulate her or try to let her know that we were there. I've been told this a few times that even if somebody is non-responsive, often their last sense that they'll lose is their sense of hearing, that they can still hear you. So make sure you're saying what you want to say. So that's basically what everybody did. We went around and made sure we said what we wanted to say to her. After Rachel's death, Danielle still felt like she had a lot to say to her sister. She wanted to keep talking to her. So she started writing poems in a very particular way that made it feel like she could have a conversation with Rachel. Contrapuntal poems. I asked Danielle to explain how the poems work. Like when you read a book written by one author, it's typically just that one author's voice. It's not a whole bunch of other people in there unless it's an anthology. It does this polyphonic thing where I bring in voices of a lot of people that I love. There's a poem in there between me and my partner, Holly, where her poem's on the left and mine is on the right. And there's a poem between the two. You know, there's a po- poems with Rachel, poems with my dad, poem with a Facebook post that my mom wrote on my sister's wall where she just said, you know, I love you and I miss you, basically. Mm. There's a whole community in this book. And that is certainly not always the case. The big idea, I think, of 
at least this chapter of your life to me, is that your poetry was a way to communicate with someone who was your most important person for all intents and purposes, who tragically passed away very suddenly. And so for a very long time, you wrote these contrapuntal poems to Rachel with Rachel's writing. And actually, I think for a while, you just pretty much exclusively did that. Yeah. Right? So how do you keep a relationship with a family member alive through writing? Well, when she died, I found a folder and inside of it were uh, a lot of Rachel's poems. And I hmm. did not know that she was writing at the time and knew that she had written in college, but I didn't know that she'd kept writing. So when I found this folder, I, I just knew I had to do something with it. I, I actually... I got to go back for a second because when she was in the ER, I had her purse on hand and in her purse was a little black moleskin book. And inside of it were poems from the last like month and a half of her life, including a poem that she wrote on February 14th, 2012, the day that she ended up, you know, everything happened. And that that definitely was the moment I knew I had to do something with her poems. And then when I found this collection of, you know, this folder with her poems in it as well, I knew. It was like yeah. a reminder. Hey, I was I'm like, over here. Okay, Come on. okay, I need to do something. <laughs> here. Yeah. And I thought, let's just see what happens. I'm just going to take some of mm. her words and I'm going to put them on a page and I'm going to write alongside them. And I am not kidding when I tell you that I felt like I was communing with her, like she and I were talking, it was, I, I, I was talking with my dad. I mean, it, it did not feel like she wasn't there. It felt like she was there and I was talking to her. I mean, I needed to have these conversations with her. She died before I could ask her, you know, why she didn't tell me. She knew, I could tell from her writing that she knew something serious was going on inside of her. I mean, she wrote about having out-of-body experiences of wondering whether or not she was dead or alive of, I mean, very intense stuff that she never told me about. And so I needed to have those conversations with her. And so I did, using poetry. Hmm. Yeah. And how long did that, how long were you in conversation with her in that way? Like two years after her death, I pretty much wrote every single day. Uh, I had a folder where I kept all of the poems I was writing with her. And I think there's close to 400 poems in there of just contrapuntal poems, which <laughs> I mean, is a little crazy because it's a very complicated form at the end of the day. It's basically like writing a puzzle every day, mm -hmm. but it, it was, it was my therapy. So, so I, I believe you said that when Rachel was alive, she was really shy to share her poetry with you. And so I don't know, I would love to hear you talk about that. And then like how you kind of negotiated that for yourself when you started writing these presumably for yourself, but I believe some have been published or at least shared externally, right? So yeah. how do you just assume she'd be cool with it kind of thing? Yeah. I don't remember which friend of hers told me this, but someone told me that Rachel was intimidated by my writing. And that's why mm. she didn't share her writing with me because she thought I wouldn't 
I don't know, see it as worthy or <laughs> I don't know what she was yeah. thinking. But when I found it and I, I mean, she's an excellent writer. She's an excellent poet. Basically, I wanted to publish her. That was my first instinct yeah. is I need to get her words out there because they're amazing. Mm. And so not only were these poems a way for me to talk to her and, you know, go through this kind of healing process with her, but it was also a way to be able to highlight her voice and get her published and to remember her, you know, not only for myself, but for her loved ones and even for people who didn't know her. So can you read us one of those poems that is part your words, part Rachel's? I'm going to read Philip's collection, which is the location that Rachel worked at actually when she um, before she died. And the last day that she was alive, she worked at the Phillips Collection, which is an art gallery in Washington, D.C. And she wrote a poem based on a traveling collection. It was just a gray, an all gray painting. And she wrote a poem about it. So I've included her lines from that last poem in this poem. Phillips Collection. There was a gray painting on display that day a traveling exhibit she was told to rotate through, monitor the artwork, make sure it isn't touched, tell everyone to just breathe it in. She worked her whole life for this moment, the chance to stand and study light, the way it forms pigment on canvas, a white wall in an old windowless room. She prayed for this perspective, her heart pasted on with a trowel, she always knew there was a storm coming, one she had met before, been soaked by such torrential, she walked around, prepared for it. Pen ready and paper, she sheltered her words close. She must have known this would be her final Rothko, her last time worshipping in the stark open chapel, a poem in the black book she kept in her purse, she carried it with her while she worked, the collection guarding art and guiding art lovers where the greens and reds of the flowers will fade. Sunlight is carefully located. The thickly painted clouds will press their way in, will rearrange the way she lived so close to vibrant colors, her arm hair electric, her skin aglow. In a way, she understood the after effect of living and how it pays homage to both birth and death all in one fleeting moment. She predicted that there will be no room for light in halls. In just a minute, I talked to Danielle about losing her father during the pandemic and her hopes for the future of her family. Stick with us. And wherever you're listening to the show, make sure you're subscribed so that you never miss an episode. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to check out our episode from season one with Peabody award-winning poet, Che Ivey. Hey, everybody. Just Tyler popping in here with a podcast recommendation for you. I am highly recommending that you check out Three Righteous Mamas. Do I even have to say anything more than that? This is a show where three all-American moms who are Latina, Muslim, and queer talk about the issues of the day with some of the biggest changemakers and thought leaders in our world. 
These three mamas are on a mission to transform our country and celebrate the power and hope of pissed off mamas who are building a better future for all of our children. There's no podcast quite like it. So check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Again, it's called Three Righteous Mamas. I was lucky enough to meet Danielle's dad once over pancakes and coffee in southwest Michigan. He was gentle and sweet. And you could tell right away that they adored each other. I asked Danielle to tell me more about his life story and how different it is to experience his slow decline due to dementia compared to the unexpected loss of her sister. So he was born in 1933 in Lansing, Michigan. His mom was from Tibnine, Lebanon, and his dad was from Aleppo, Syria. And he entered the priesthood when he was 13 years old. And he was a priest from, I believe, the age of 25 till 30. He ended up not agreeing 100% with a lot of the church's teachings. He did end up leaving. He was not excommunicated, though. He was still able to perform certain priestly functions, but he became a professor. Just dropping in here to say that we actually have audio of him in the classroom. I think that you can hear how much he loved being there. He begins by reading from a book. I reached up so as to make chair and bed exactly stand upon that snow out in that crystal land. Wow, but what the hell is he saying here? <laughs> Damned if I know, so I went to- He was one of the first professors at Kalamazoo Valley Community College. He started one year mm. after they opened. And he taught there all the way through until the fall of 2019. Um, he taught there for 51 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He once told me he wanted to die in the classroom, and I told him that would be very traumatic for his students, and he shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, <laughs> if it weren't for that, I don't. I think he probably would have. But oh. yeah, I mean, pretty much immediately after he retired, um, he started to go downhill. So. I think his love for teaching and and that profession really kept him going, to be honest. So I'm sorry, you you may have just said this, but when did he retire? He retired in August of 2019, and he died in September mm -hmm. of 2020. Mm. Yeah. A lot of people didn't really see what I was seeing, I think, because I, I was so close to him. I called him every single day from the day Rachel died until the day he died. <laughs> I talked to my father every single day and mm. I could tell mentally something was off. Something in me knew maybe he was experiencing some dementia. And when he came to visit me the Thanksgiving of 2019, he was in a hotel just down the street from this little grocery store. He could just walk down like a half a block to get an apple. He loved apples. And I said, well, if you need an apple, it's just down the street. And he kept forgetting how to get there. That that was a pretty big sign for me that something was not right. But then it got it got much worse. We planned a trip to Rome, Italy in February. We were gonna bring Rachel's ashes there, which she apparently told him before she died that she thought she would die before him and that she wanted her ashes brought to the Tiber River. And so we planned a trip for September of 2020. And we booked it in February. And within a week or two of booking it, he 
told me he wasn't sure if he would be able to go with me. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) We just booked this trip together. Why are you all of a sudden thinking you won't go? And he said he had the heebie-jeebies, which is another one of these terms that, you know, it's like... (laughs) Uh, I said, well, I don't quite know what the heebie-jeebies are, but maybe you should go see a doctor. And yeah, that was the beginning of his hospital journey and physical therapy and then hospice and then it was yeah it was then he died it strikes me that this was happening in a pandemic you were trying to help as much as you could it was not easy i was lucky enough that when he first entered the hospital the pandemic had not fully gone out of control yet. There were no lockdowns or anything. So I was able to be in the hospital with him for the first week or so that he was there. And then the hospitals went on lockdown. I had to return back to Virginia and I wasn't able to see him again for several months, which of course he didn't understand. That was another really hard part about the pandemic is that with his dementia and not being able to see people, I believe his dementia honestly worsened quickly because of the pandemic because nobody was able to be there. I'm just now remembering this video you shared, and I can't remember what your father said to you, but I think it was maybe the last time you saw him alive. Did you know that that was maybe the last time you were going to see him? I had no idea he was going to decline as quickly as he did. I ended up finding out that usually what happens is people have like a last burst of energy before they're going to die. And Mm. I had been seeing him during this burst of energy moment. And so I thought he was actually starting to get better. And I left Mm. and I drove back to Virginia (laughs) and I had just gotten home when I got the call that I needed to hop a flight and come right back. And so, yeah, that was the last time I talked to him. Thankfully, I had asked him to say, I love you. I love you. I love you to me and my mom and Holly. (laughs) And I recorded him saying those. And I asked him if he had anything else he wanted to say. You know, I just recorded him a lot in those last couple months. And I'm really thankful I did that because every now and then I'll just go back and listen to him. You mentioned traveling to scatter Rachel's ashes with your dad. I'm curious, now that he has also passed, if you have plans to maybe do that. I do still have plans. (laughs) From what I understand, it's not necessarily legal to actually bring ashes to (laughs) another country to to spread. We will cut this part. (laughs) So I can't confirm or deny, but let's just say I still have plans, yes. I asked Danielle to share another poem. This one is made up of fragments of things that her father said to her. This is Gazing at the Unforgettable, which is a line that he actually said to me on FaceTime about a month before he died. He was looking at me and he said he was gazing at the unforgettable. So that's the title of this poem. Well, hello. I never know what I'm going to know next. Unscrew my hands and wash them. Ergo sum qui sum. There's too much history here. You know, of course, that you are the epitome. I'm glad that you were born the way you were and that you were born. This is the part in the movie where we cry. There are times that touch. This is one of those times. Eventually, we'll get the wallpaper. I'm going to miss this place. When I first came, I learned church. 
command me, command me. I was crying last night. All of this had to mean something. I know exactly how I'm going to sleep tonight. The first thing I do when I wake up is go back to sleep because I don't want to wake up. I don't want to get rid of you. Good night, sweet princess. Bricks and stones may break, but when it's warmer, I will walk you around the villa. When I walked into the earliest place, well, I thought, do we know what we know? I don't know why, but I love you. I don't know what to say when I pray. Spread yourself a thousand ways. Take me with you. Mm. That's beautiful. Before I wrapped up my time with Danielle, I wanted to talk to her about the future of her family, which these days centers around her fiancé, Holly. Holly is amazing. She has been my rock through all of it, and I still don't understand how somebody knows how to be so supportive of somebody who's grieving without necessarily having gone through that same type of grief before. Like, I sometimes don't know how to comfort her through some of the grief she's gone through. It's a very different kind of grief. Hmm. She was close to your father, right? Yes, they were very close. They were very, very close. He was, you know, a religious man, and she came from a religious upbringing. And as a queer woman, she has been rejected by her family for being queer, and they are religious. And so to have a religious man like my father accept her, I know, was a big thing for her. I think I relate and connect to this part of your story in terms of a mm -hmm. disapproving family. My husband's parents were not supportive. And in fact, we had to live in kind of this existence of like, we weren't together, mm -hmm. but we were together. So I'm curious how that plays out for the two of you, sort of the challenges of partnering with someone whose family is not initially approving. I definitely relate to that experience because still mm -hmm. Holly's parents don't want to know that I'm around. Mm -hmm. Her mom has actually said, like, I don't want to talk to you if she's there. You know, it's definitely a, you know, a challenge, especially because I, as the partner who has this really loving and accepting family, I don't exactly know how to navigate that space. I wish that you could just, you know, snap your fingers and make somebody's prejudices go away. <laughs> But unfortunately, yeah. it takes a long time and sometimes it never does change. And we are currently on the path of it not changing. So I don't exactly know what that's going to yeah. look like going forward with marriage and potentially children. But we will. We've gone through a lot already. <laughs> so I know that we yeah. can. We'll just navigate it together. So. Yeah, it's it's very tricky. And I think in my case, there's acceptance, but. I think there's always going to be a sense of loss from their end. But, you know, the children make it better almost mm -hmm. on some level in their case. And, you know, I, I think there's no way to compare people's exact scenarios because everybody is arriving to the decision to do what they've done or haven't done based on their journey and their experience and their beliefs and their value systems. And yeah. and so I think it's useful to people who are listening mm -hmm. to a podcast <laughs> who may relate to this to know that they're not alone. I guess the important thing, right, is for us to just try to stay as solid as we can with ourselves and our partners. Yeah, yeah. And just to make sure that throughout any of the confrontations or difficulties that the family side of things, you know, the might bring in that you have your own family unit and that there's still this love 
that we can continue to foster and continue to grow. What kind of things from Rachel, your dad, your mom, do you want to pass on to your future spawn? Well, honestly, I feel like I won the lottery when I got my mom. She is one of a kind, amazing, brilliant, beautiful woman. And I hope I can be like her in a lot of ways when when I am a mother, but perhaps with some of the flair that Rachel had and a sense of style and fashion, I can pass that on. And then with the wisdom of my father, because he was, you know, this very wise man, and I will certainly be passing on some of his weird weird lingo. I'll be sure to say heebie-jeebie all the time. And his his corny, corny dad jokes, of course. I'll, I'll be the one passing those on for sure. Yes. Yeah. I'm very grateful that you're willing to share these stories and just aware that you have been through so much thus far in your journey. And, you know, life is incredibly beautiful and unfair. And I just have always thought you were such a fucking powerhouse of a human and so I just am grateful that you're sharing this story with this show with this community and looking so forward to squeezing some cheeks <laughs> yours Holly's <laughs> and your child's future. feeling is mutual <laughs> <laughs> loss doesn't have to mean goodbye We can keep people we love alive in our life, have conversations with them through the things they leave behind and our memories of them. Whether it's abrupt and unexpected, like the loss of her sister, or a slow decline, like the loss of her father, grief is gut-wrenching. And also, sort of a gift, because it is a sign that we had something meaningful. If you're at a stage like Danielle, where you're looking to grow and expand your family, it's an important step to take stock of what family means to you, the things from your family of origin that are worth holding on to and trying to recreate, and the things you want to let go of. My husband and I have started the journey to have a second baby. Yes, I know, buried the lead there. It's exciting. More to come soon. But... As I navigate the various steps needed to make this happen, and it's a project, I keep Danielle's family at the forefront of my mind. This is a family built on love. No question. A family that shows up for each other in so many profound and selfless ways. A family that has gone through it. And still, that kindness, that love, It pulsates through them today as they keep growing. Meeting Father Badra, or Baba as Danielle calls him, is a kind of sense memory that when I'm able to recall it, I can access this instant calm. It's really rare to meet someone like that. Someone who is so pure and rigorous with their love and who clearly has an absolute awe at this place we call Earth. I I don't know how I can account for my success unless I had been here before. Do you think you could come back again? I don't want to come back again. Mm -hmm. I'll never be this lucky, Mm. including my losses. Mm. I'll never be this lucky. (laughs) 
Thanks to Danielle Badger for joining us on This Is My Family. Her manuscript, Like We Still Speak, was selected as the winner of the 2021 Adel Adnan Poetry Prize and is forthcoming through the University of Arkansas Press in fall of 2021. Next week, our guest will be another heart friend of mine, Emily Modaff. Their journey to sobriety and experiences as a sponsor in a 12-step program have redefined their relationships and can teach us a lot about chosen family. By the time I was considering getting sober, it was truly a matter of either I get sober or I, I kill myself. And my therapist said, can you just give it 30 days? And I was like, sure. And then I'll let you know how much it sucks. It's been really cool to hear from those of you who are listening and offering gratitude for the stories on this show. It really makes everything worth it. And I know that's a cliche, but I don't know how else to say it because I am a walking cliche. I wanted to share one letter that I received from a listener named Alexandra who knew me when I was in high school. Hi, you and I went to the same school, but you were older than I, and we never knew each other. I went to plays you were in in high school and even followed you when you did a production, I believe, at K College. You capture my attention because one, you were a fabulous entertainer, thanks, and two, because I knew I identified with you. There was no gay representation. I didn't know I was until I moved to Grand Rapids and figured it out in hard ways. I'm now back in Kalamazoo after living in Grand Rapids and Cincinnati, and I've learned to love this town that I used to loathe. I wanted to be so far away from it, but now there are representations of all sorts of people. I have a family of three, my fiance, my future stepdaughter, myself, plus a couple pets. Listening to your podcast just makes me so proud and appreciative. I just wanted to say thank you. Um, that's really intense and I cried and I just wanted to say thank you, Alexandra. And for that message, there have been dozens more. We've only made eight episodes and I can't wait to see what we do next. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TIMF show. Our website is TIMFshow.com. We're also on Podchaser. Just search for This Is My Family and Patreon, patreon.com slash TIMF show. The show is a production of thestoryproducer.com, and it's made by me, Katie Cloxon, Trisha Bobita, Jackie Ball, and B. Bosco. It is edited and mixed by Adam Yaffe. Our music is by Andrew Edwards. Social Current takes care of our social media and show administration. Find them at socialcurrent, that's social, C-U-R-R-A-N-T, dot co. And last but certainly not least, our art director is my handsome husband, Ziwu Zhou. If you like this show, please help spread the word. No. Literally, word of mouth is the best thing that you can do for us. We want to get tons of ears on these conversations and hopefully more people feeling connected in these disconnected times. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Tyler Green. And until next time, stay beautiful and messy. Is the podcast all done, Sam?